All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Philippians. Now, the last time we were here, we were beginning in chapter three, dealing with Paul's warning to the Philippian members to be mindful of the Judaizers. Now, if you remember what we talked about, what we explained, the Judaizers were Jewish teachers who would often come after Paul when Paul would uh, establish a church, strengthen a church. They would follow after Paul and began to teach that not only was faith in Jesus enough to be saved, but if the Gentiles and go back and look at the previous video that I did in uh, chapter three, but if the Gentiles were to be complete in their salvation, they need to add on the keeping of the law. That is, they need to become circumcised and be keepers of the law to the which they were actually creating a different kind of gospel. Paul preached the gospel of salvation by faith in the person and works of Jesus alone. But these Judaizers, false Jewish teachers, would add on to the gospel, thereby making it a gospel of works. That is, by adding anything to true pure faith in Christ alone, it is a distortion and a perversion of the gospel. And by the adding of the Mosaic law, it actually makes uh, our salvation, or should I dare say such salvation, a works related salvation, which is no salvation at all. And this is why Paul took such a negative attitude toward these false teachers. And so Paul was simply saying to these Philippians to be mindful of such false teachers entering the congregation once he had left, once he had departed and began to espouse such doctrines, circumcision and the keeping of the law. And so we see such such pejoratives that Paul called them dogs, evil workers or flesh mutilators or uh, as it is translated, the false circumcision. And he basically said, we, those who believe in Christ Jesus and have faith in his works, his person and works alone, we are the circumcision. They translated it, the NASP, true circumcision, which is basically the idea, but it is that we are the true spiritual people of God because this is ordained of God. That is this way of salvation, faith in God's son, faith in the works of God's son. This is the ordination of the father himself. No other way, no other plan except faith in Jesus alone. And so Paul continued going and talk about a contrast between himself and these false Jewish teachers because they had pride in their Jewishness, pride in their pedigree in being Jews and pride in whatever religious advantage that they had. And in the contrast, Paul was saying if they thought that they had these things, he himself had more that Paul was indeed a Jew a Hebrew and was of the Hebrew custom and traditions even more than they were. And Paul listed that such genealogical pedigree, Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin circumcised on the eighth day. And then Paul talked about his religious Jewish advantages in that he was a Pharisee. According to the law, he was blameless, but nevertheless, although Paul had greater 
pedigree and religious advantages than these false teachers who would boast in these things. Paul counted all of this to be nothing so that he may attain to what God had desired for him. He wanted that uh, salvation by faith in Christ Jesus alone. He wanted to hold to Jesus alone and he counted uh, uh, having faith in Jesus, that which was determined by God. We talked about that already. He wanted that above all things to the degree that he counted all things in his former life, all such advantages as rubbish, as dung, so that he could hold to Christ Jesus. Okay. But anyway, so his idea is that reaching for, and we're going to talk about that too. I'm already a little premature in that he wants to hold to Christ Jesus he wants the excellence of all things that is in Christ Jesus alone. And he repudiates, he rejects any uh, 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 glory in the flesh. And by glory in the flesh, that is that Jewish pedigree that he once had. Now, with all of that, let's finally finish uh, chapter three. This should be relatively short uh, verses 12 through 21, as Paul kind of continues on and talking about that holding on what it is to hold on to Christ Jesus that Paul himself desires to do, hold on to Christ Jesus and to be, if you'll let me say it this way, and to be all that God has desired for Paul to be in Christ Jesus. All right, no further ado, let's just simply get started. Verse number 12, continuing. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I've heard much to do in a lot of preaching about this text, but little exegesis of the text. So what is Paul talking about? Verse number 12, he is simply saying that he has not in this present life, and Paul knows this to be true, uh, uh, that he'll never really reach this state, and neither will we, neither will any of us. But the point is, Paul is dealing with sinless perfection. Notice, not that I have obtained it already or become perfect. That perfection that Paul is talking about is that spiritual perfection. This is what we refer to as sanctification, or in other words, we can understand it as sinlessness. So Paul is simply saying, he has not reached a state of sinless perfection, a point in his life where he does not sin anymore. And he understands that. But what you need to understand is, this is what Paul is wrestling and grappling and reaching for as the text itself will explain it. But notice the state of this sinless perfection, 
No, but I press on so that I may lay hold for that which I was laid hold of. In other words, sinless perfection is the end that God has determined for Paul. And so therefore, Paul is saying what? I am struggling to reach that state of sinless perfection. This is what we call sanctification. Okay, very briefly, sanctification can be understood in two perspectives. That sanctification, that is the setting aside to the which God has set us aside in Christ Jesus for lives of holiness. This is a saint, this is a work of God in Christ that is already done and complete. In Christ Jesus, we have been sanctified. All who believe in Jesus, all of God's children are sanctified and complete in Christ Jesus. We have perfect holiness and perfect righteousness in Christ Jesus. This is what is called positional righteousness or a positional truth, a state of the believer that once the person believes in Christ Jesus, this is what this individual has by virtue of his setting, his being in Christ, holiness and perfection. Okay. Sanctification. And then there is another perspective of sanctification. This is the lived out life. What do I mean is how we, our, how our lives are being transformed into the daily image of Christ, this sanctification. And thus we experience, let me make sure you understand it correctly. Thus we experience in the sanctification of our lives, this evolution, this day by day, day by day growth in the sanctification where we sin less because in our lives. And if you have been saved for any period of time, you already know we sin. That's why John said in first John, if we confess if who we, 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 the saints of God confess our sins, God is faithful and just. So we do sin and thereby is the need for confession of those sins. What did the saints, what did the disciples ask Jesus? Lord, teach us how to pray. And what were one of those main ingredients involved in the prayer for the disciples, those who are saved? Forgive us of our trespasses. Thus, Jesus tells us we need to deal with our sins, God's people. So sanctification is about the transforming of the believer's life that he or she sins less and less. There is that desire. There is that perfection, that sinless perfection, which is set as a goal for the believer's life. It ought to be set as the goal for the believer's life. And that's what Paul is talking about. That sanctification that deals with the sinless perfection in the believer's life. And so what does he say? I have not been made perfect. I have not reached this particular state even in my own life. But what, what do I do? What did Paul say? What did, he said, I press on to lay hold for this, that which was 
or uh, laid hold on for me. That is God's object. God's desire for the believer is to reach a point of sinless perfection that we all get to a point where we sin no more. Now, this is the absolute standard. And as I said to you earlier, it is not a standard that we can reach on our own or that we will reach in this life. However, it is like we can grow all the way up to that point, but never able being truly able to reach that point. Because as we'll talk about in the end of this section, to reach the point of the absolute sinless perfection is not something that we can do. It is a transformation that only Jesus can do for us. And this transformation comes only when this sinful flesh has been done away with. That is when we no longer are living in this sinful body. According to Romans chapter seven, we struggle with our sinful flesh. We still have a sinful nature. Thus Christians have two natures. As Peter says, one, we have the divine nature, that which is given by God at the point of our salvation. But then again, we also have the sinful nature, Romans chapter five, I believe it is, that which is inherited from our father, Adam, and thus our sinful nature, Romans chapter seven, is always at war with our spiritual nature and thus from time to time, depending on where we are in our sanctification, from time to time, we yield to sin. But let's go back to the text. But I wanted to give you guys a really good grips on that. It took me a long time to really understand that myself. But what Paul was simply saying was this, what God has set this high standard of sinless perfection the ultimate goal and what Paul is saying is he is struggling to reach that goal of sinless perfection, but he hadn't reached it. Thus what he says, 13, again, he emphasizes he ain't at that point yet, but how does he reach the goal of this great sanctification of sinless perfection? He says, I have to forget what is behind me and reach forward to that which is before me, that which is before Paul, stay with the context of scripture, is the goal of that sinless perfection. And Paul is saying he is stretching out and this is almost like an agony of desire to reach this goal of sanctification, sinless perfection. But he has to forget what lies in the past. What lies in his past? The immediate context of scripture is in considering who Paul once thought he had. All of this Jewish pride and who he once was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, zeal and the law and uh, being blameless. Forget all of that. 
This is not important if you're going to reach the goal. So there is a need for the shedding of pride, the shedding of human hubris in Paul thinking of who he was and in Paul being like Jesus, Philippians chapter two, emptying himself of all of this gall and pride and to be humble like his Lord Jesus. This is also forgetting what was behind. But I dare say, let me add, forgetting the mistakes. And when I say forgetting the mistakes, I'm talking about sin. And I usually don't ever use the word mistakes, but sin. And what I mean by forgetting the sin I don't mean forgetting and shedding any remembrance of it. I mean that don't allow sins of your past become a stumbling stone. Let sins of the past be a teacher. Let them serve. Let the pain of those sins serve as a memorial. Let it teach you. All right. I don't ever want to do that again. Or Lord, I am weak in this area. Strengthen me in this area. Don't let sin be a constant reminder so much that you can't forget about it and move on. That is to say a beautiful passage. And let me say it again. I talked about it once before. What did John say? If we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is, once you ask God to forgive you of your sins, you don't have to wallow in pity or blame or regret. You Forget about it and move on. So thus, what am I trying to say? I also would say in a practical sense, number one, not only is Paul forgetting any of the prideful advantages that he thought he once had, he also got to forget about the things that he once did and do what and press on. And this is a wonderful thing for each and every one of us to remember. Forget those things which are behind and press on to that which is in front. Okay, today is a new day. God bless me. He forgave me of all my sins. He woke me up this morning, gave me a new mind, gave me a new spirit, and he gave me another chance. I used to like to say it this way. I got another day to get it right. I have another chance to live even better for my Lord Jesus. And this is the very essence of sanctification or what Paul is talking about here, pressing toward that mark for the high call of God. Okay. All right. That's enough of that. So that's the point of what Paul is talking about. He is talking about reaching forward to sinless perfection, knowing that he hadn't reached that mark, but nevertheless, it's a goal that he has, a goal that God set for him, even all believers, to reach this goal of sanctification in their lives. Let's continue. Let us therefore, 15, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. 
And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have obtained. So let me just stop there as Paul kind of uh, uh, congeals this particular section of thought. So he says what he urges the, in the, in the manner that he is pressing for that high call, that sinless perfection. He also urges all believers to have this same kind of mindset to do what as many as are perfect. And what he means by perfect, he's not mean, he's not talking about sinless perfection, but he's talking about as many as are spiritual mature. You see, as we live long enough in Christ Jesus, these desires, as we stay in the word, as God's spirit continues to transform us in our daily lives, he moves us to the desire that we want to be holy people and live holy lives for our Lord. And this is the bringing about of spiritual maturity. And this is what Paul means by the term of perfect. As many as are spiritually mature, like Paul, that we should have what? This same desire in us to live in this same manner. And if ever we begin to fail, if ever we begin to miss the mark, if ever we get on the wrong track, what does he say? And I love this. I love the way he says this. God will reveal that also to you. He says it in such a wonderful way. If you get on the wrong track, Paul says it like this. I'm not even worried about it. God will tell you the Holy Spirit will let you know you are going in the wrong direction. You need to repent. You are becoming too carnal minded. You are beginning to yield too much to the flesh. This ain't who you are. You need to stop, reassess, back up and get back on the road to uh, 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 living the life that God wants you to live, living how you were once living, God will reveal it to you. I like that part. But anyway, so he just simply urges in verse number 16, thus to continue living according to that same standard that they have been attained. That is that righteous standing, because all of this particular section in here is simply talking about that sanctification or righteous living. So in other words, just keep living right. Keep on pressing towards that mark. That is, you want to get to that goal of spiritual sanctification where sin has been practically eliminated in your life. That high prize for the upward call of God. And that's what he's talking about. All right, let's move toward the end and bring chapter three to an end. Brethren, join in following my example, verse 17, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So now Paul contrasts himself and the example that he is giving Paul 
Timothy, and even you can include Epaphroditus that Paul talked about earlier in chapter two. But Paul, Timothy were examples of steadfastness towards God. So he says, join in following his example and in following the pattern that they've seen in Paul, the pattern of godly living, the pattern of not only living for God, but remember what we talked about in chapter one, you have to go back and check out that video, doing things for the right reason, living for God for the right reason, teaching for God, preaching for God, that what you see in Paul and Timothy for the right reason. Okay. So do that. So the issue of verse number 18, walking, walking always speaks about how you live your Christian life. And again, that speaks to what that idea that we just left from sanctification, sinlessness, walk. Uh, then he talked about that secondary group. And now he begins to kind of refer back to those ministers that he talked about in chapter one. Now, that is the inference there. It is a slight inference because he's going to talk about them being that, that is their appetite. Their God is their appetite, glory in their shame. And this kind of refers back to those teachers. Remember in chapter one, go back and check out the video when he said, because of my imprisonment, many have been emboldened to preach the gospel, but there are two groups. Some preach the gospel with right motivations because they want to be associated with me in preaching the gospel of Christ. They want to see the gospel go forward. He said, but then there's another group who preached the gospel, but in some way they wish to add to my imprisonment but they preach the gospel with wrong motivation. It is because of their own desires, their own selfish glory, their own appetites, their own motivation, wrong motivation. So that's that particular group that he infers to, but not only that group, but also at the beginning of chapter three, watch, beware, the dogs, remember the Jewish false teachers. Okay. So this group, he also has in mind. So any of these people you can kind of bring together, but with respect to the uh, epistle to the Philippians, notably that group in chapter one. Now they preach the gospel, the true gospel. And that's why Paul said, whether in pretense, whether they did it with the right motivation or whether they did it with a, a wrong motivation, pretense. He didn't care. The gospel was preached, thereby Paul rejoiced. So that first group preached the right gospel. The group, the Judaizers of chapter three, preached a wrong and a false gospel, okay? So you got the point, you got the point. So whether the first group even though they preached the right, right gospel or the second group, they preached the wrong gospel. Watch those jokers all together. Paul is simply warning against such people. That's all he's doing there. Okay. And what is he saying about these people as a whole? He calls them enemies of the cross of Christ, especially, or should I say it this way, namely the Judaizers 
Why are they the enemies of the cross of Christ? Because they are preaching a different gospel. Anytime you bring in anything, and I mean anything, alongside of, in addition to, faith in Jesus alone, you have corrupted the gospel and thereby it is a false gospel that you are preaching or teaching. And this is what the Judaizers did saying you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved, to be complete, to be perfect. This is an addition to the gospel. The gospel of Christ is to believe in Jesus alone. He is God who took flesh, lived righteously, and that righteous life was imputed to us, who died for our sins, was resurrected on the third day. That's it. For if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe with your heart, God res resurrected him from the dead, what did Paul say? You will be saved. That's it. You don't add anything to the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15 verses one through four. This is the gospel that Paul preached to add anything to say, well, now you need to do this. And now you need to do that. Now is in, is a corruption to the gospel. And this is what the Judaizers did. This is what made them enemies of the cross because such a gospel is a false gospel. And notice what he says, verse number 18, 19, I'm sorry, whose end is destruction. I cannot emphasize that enough. To believe in a false gospel is a false belief. And if you don't believe the true gospel, salvation by faith in the person of Jesus alone, you'll find out in the end, you ain't saved. And thus these Judaizers with this false addition to the gospel, they thought they were saved. But what is Paul saying? Their end is actually hell, the lake of fire, destruction. And then he continues on to talk about some of the give descriptors of these false teachers their God is their appetite. In other words, the true God trying to please the true God is not their chief aim because if the chief aim was trying to please the true God, they would be teaching and preaching Jesus and Jesus alone. Faith in Jesus alone, not adding on the law of Moses. No, they are desirous of doing their own will and thus they bring alongside of the law of Moses. But also God is their appetite or God is their belly. Glory is in their shame. All of this works together. Set their mind on earthly things. In other words, he also by the expansion, notice again, glory in things that they should be ashamed of. See, it, if you've been staying with me in all of this teaching and the very Carmen Christie, remember we talked about that in chapter two, that's about uh, uh, the hymn to Christ. What did Jesus do? What was the glory of Jesus? The glory of Jesus was his humility. 
And that is the very opposite of these teachers. They have glory in pride. Thus, it is a glory in shame. You understand that? You need to divest yourself of any pride. Paul says those things that were counted as once advantages to me. How do you see it now, Paul? He said, I see it as rubbish. But notice they glory in their shame. And what is their also desire? They set their minds on earthly things. It also shows what about these false teachers? Motivation, motivation. Why? Because they were looking for things in this earth. And again, it kind of takes your mind back to chapter one. Why are you preaching what you are preaching? Why are you doing what you are doing for earthly advantage? And when I say earthly advantage, and when Paul says it as well, that it's just simply saying to gain stuff on this earth. Let me make a, a, a side comment. Nothing disturbs me more than when I'm driving down the street and on an automobile, I, most likely some type of a luxury automobile. I see some, I guess, so-called Christian on the back of the tag of the car with the tag blessed. So are you blessed because you can get this luxury automobile? Is that what you're saying? Are you blessed because you got a great big house? Is that saying that God has blessed you? This is not this very idea of blessedness ain't biblical at all. It is not Christian at all. It is not derived from any doctrine of the Bible. Material prosperity has nothing to do with blessedness according to Christianity. When God talks about blessedness, he ain't talking about how much stuff you got. Suppose you're a poor Christian, then are you no longer blessed? Our blessedness, our spiritual blessings, such spiritual blessings which are hidden with Christ, we do not receive such blessedness till Christ returns. And this is what Paul talks about. But this is the very nature of these false teachers whom Paul said now, he said, I'm weeping. They break my heart, these jack leg preachers, because they are the enemies of Christ. Why? Their gods is their bellies. Their God is thinking in which they are looking to earthly things. Trying, and you can see that. Let me say this and I'm going to move on. They are the Joel Osteens of this world. The T.D. Jakes of this world. The Rod Parsleys of this world. The Kenneth Copelands of this world. And, and this other preacher who always telling jokes of this world. The prosperity preachers of this world. And he says, now I'm finishing his verse number 20. So now he talks about, again, the teaching of Paul, the teaching of Timothy, the hope of these people like Paul. For our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, from which also we eagerly wait. Two things are going to be tied on. We eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Okay, let's wrap it up. So he says, for our citizenship in heaven, so unlike these false teachers, people who are breaking Paul's heart, unlike these prosperity lovers, prosperity Christians who love things, who set their minds on earthly things, he said, true Christians, Paul says, our, notice Paul includes himself, true Christians, our citizenship, where is not on earth. We don't set our mind on earthly things. We don't look so much as to get the earthly things. We don't call material things blessings. Our blessings are in heaven. Our citizenship. We are not citizens of this earth looking for earthly things. We are at war with the world, the flesh and the devil. Our citizenship is in heaven and notice. And with that in mind, the citizenship of heaven, we eagerly await the Lord Jesus Christ who himself will come from heaven with him is the treasures for all the saints. Jesus will return with the blessings for his people. Jesus will take, even though momentarily, his people to a greater place. And like Abraham, he looked forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. He did not set his mind on earthly things and neither shall, should we who are true believers in Christ Jesus. But that's what he's talking about. He makes that quick contrast. And then he talks about in the return of Jesus. Now let's tie this second part and bring it to a close in the return of Jesus. What does he do? He takes the body of this humble existence. That is Jesus transforms our earthly first Corinthians chapter 15, that resurrection from the dead chapter. When he talks about this body of mortality, this body of death, this body of decay, this body of weakness, this body of earthliness and first Corinthians 15. Let me keep preaching. It transforms into a heavenly body, a glorious body to a new body a body, as Paul says, even here, likened unto his own. And Jesus transforms our body in a body of transformation like his own, a body of glory, a body likened of his own glory by his own power. But notice, transform that body. Now, here's the point. For in the transformation of our bodies, by Jesus, he brings us to that final thing. Remember what Paul says? He is reaching forward to that which he was laid hold of by God. That is, notice, remember, remember, sinless perfection, sinless perfection. For in the day of our transformation by Jesus, this body where that sin nature resides, it will be no more. That is destroyed. And Jesus will give us a body 
similar to his own. It is a body of perfection. It is a body of glory. It is a body where you will never have a sinful thought. You will never have a sinful desire. You will never have, we will never have another sinful inclination. Sinlessness, the state of perfect sanctification, sinless perfection will finally be reached only when Jesus transforms the body. So Paul kind of loops it back around to the point we reach, that is, we struggle and we strive for lives of sinless perfection. No one will never reach it until Jesus changes the body. But until then, we try to live right. As Paul says, follow his example. Follow the example of his. Timothy Epaphroditus, live according to that righteous standards and beware of these false preachers and false teachers. Do not be influenced and in, uh, 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 learn from them. Don't learn anything from them for Paul says they teach a false gospel to the which Paul said, it breaks my heart because this gospel that they are teaching lends itself to destruction and really it is settled on things on this earth. But true Christians and true people of God, we understand that we are citizens of heaven and we look forward to our blessings at the return of Jesus. And the fullness of that blessing comes when he transform our bodies. And then we reach that state of sinless perfection. Okay, I was too long as usual, but thanks guys for joining me with that particular teaching. If this teaching has been a blessing to you and the Lord touches your heart always and only, only consider supporting this ministry. You can always use that thanks in the YouTube or there's a link in the description that you can use to do so. And also help the word of God, these teachings to go out into God's people in the YouTube community by subscribing and hitting that like button. All right, guys, God bless you. See you next time as we continue in the final chapter of the book of Philippians.